Welcome to Radar Contact, the air traffic management podcast by Fox ATM. For this episode, my guest is uh, an old acquaintance and friend of mine, Philippe Butterworth-Hayes, who is serving as the editor of the website unmannedairspace.info. Uh, he's an expert on, on everything U-space, drones, and, and much more. And we will discuss, uh, obviously, UTM and, and regulations. Philippe, welcome to this episode of Radar Contact. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. And maybe you can introduce yourself and, and unmannedairspace.info rapidly before we go deep in the, in the flying things and, and unmanned airspace. So we set up unmanned airspace in 2017. It's a website dedicated to UTM or U-space, UAS traffic management. I, personally, I've, I've come from the air traffic management environment. I, I was at Cancer for a while um, and I've done some work, a lot of work with Eurocontrol. And the other part of my background is in aerospace and aeronautics research and writing and communication. So come at it from two different ways. But I, I've always been fascinated by the concept of the sky above us, who owns it, who can fly through it, permissions, what you can do and what you can't do. And so it was a natural sort of step, really, from spending a lot of time on air traffic management to UTM, U-space management, because this is whole wild new frontier for a whole, for a whole different number of reasons, including a really interesting idea about humans and autonomous systems, how they're going to work in the future. And the first place we're going to see this, I think, really is, is, is in the sky. So that's my fascination. That's why we started Armand Airspace in 2017. I thought perhaps we'd do about sort of five or six stories a week, but we're now sort of doing 20, 30 stories a week, which shows exactly what's been happening to the industry. And that's quite remarkable, considering it doesn't actually exist yet as an industry. Yeah, that, that was surprising to me. And I followed Armand Airspace a long time ago. How, how visionary you were in starting a media, watching everything's drones, because you, you do look at more than UTM. I mean, sometimes on unmanned airspace, you have information about manufacturers and so. You are probably the first media to, to watch that space, and I'm sure that will give us a lot of material for the discussions today. The first one I'd like to touch, looking specifically at UTM, is how you see as, as a neutral observer the future role of, of ANSPs. And I'm asking that because if you look at EASA rules or, or the, the commission model, there are two roles defined quite clearly, which are USSP on one side and CISP on the other side. Different organizations tend to position themselves differently. So how do you see that, that move in the market? What do you think will be the future and, and who will become what? Let's start with easy questions. Okay, so I think you have to see this in the round. You have to see this in the entire element of digitizing airspace from, from drones all the way up to space tourist vehicles. And so we, this is a radical transformation. And, and UTM sits in this, what is going to be, we think, a coming revolution of the entire digitization of the airspace, where a lot of the core technologies, the technology-based CNS ATM systems, which at the moment are owned and operated by ANSPs. That will, according to um, studies like the European Architecture, Airspace Architecture Study, that will slowly become, they become service-oriented services, which are provided by third parties. And the ANSPs will no longer own sort of the radars, although there won't be radars, there'll be, they'll, they'll be position transmission systems. So it's all part of this much wider revolution where the technology, the airspace technology is going to be hived off from the service side. 
that's that's the blueprint. That's the, that's the grand plan, and UTM is part of that. So CIS is a is an infrastructure which will be different from the service provision. It's interesting, isn't it, about whether that's going to happen or not in this in the way that people envisage it. It's a huge leap, and it can't be done in one go. It has to be done in steps. And UTM is an important step because it provides the the philosophical change that's required. So nobody really owning very much, nobody owning a lot of hardware, a lot more service level agreements for providing services and, and managing that. And that is interesting in the drone space. What um, Skyguide is doing in Switzerland with their virtual center, and they're doing that actually on the big ATM stage. And that's terribly important because they're, they're, you know, they're struggling with the service level agreements between the service providers. They've done a fantastic piece of work in Switzerland. And it's really interesting to see how that's going to, how that's going to work out. I, I don't think it's any coincidence that they're doing that on the ATM side at the same time as they're pioneering quite a lot of the UTM space stuff. So I don't know whether that's answered the question, but it is but it is much it is part of a much wider digital ecosystem which will change now I, personally i have one or two reservations about it. i have one or two reservations about whether we can transfer things that will work quite well for mobile networks into air traffic management where 99.9% latency and efficiency and safety is just not good enough but i could be wrong i could be wrong um so we'll we'll have to wait and see how that pans out there is one thing that for me sounds different looking at the plans of EU, because when you look at ATM, historically you had one ANSP per country. Now you have some countries like the UK or even even other, even Germany and Switzerland have secondary ANSPs that own the airspace around certain airports. But ANSPs are always having their own exclusive airports or airspace. And apparently the, the commission wants to have competition between different uh, USSPs. And do you see that competition as each USSP having its own airspace and being responsible within that airspace and have a lot of small ones in a country? Or could even different USSPs be active and manage the same airspace and offer different services, just like, as you mentioned, telecom providers are doing? So is that competition geographically separated or will USSPs compete in the same geographical place? It's a really interesting question. I think there are a lot of things tied up in that question. There's institutions, there's technology, ownership, and for me, the key thing that's missing at the moment, especially in space and UTM, but also in the wider digitization, is the business plans. So how everybody is going to make money and how you provide a system which will ensure that people who provide basic data, safety of life data, if they fail as a corporation, what then happens? And that's one big question. And the other big question to me is, I still don't know how in Europe, use-based service providers are actually going to make any money. And I'm sure everybody's got extremely good ideas about that, including the commission. I've, I've heard a lot of, sort of ideas about how these things are possible. But I think we need to have a much better, a much clearer view of how competition is going to work, how competition is going to work in areas where there will be monopolistic service providers, and how competition is going to work especially in urban environments where you have local authorities having a stake and taking a part in the ecosystem and also having some part of the UTM system too. So these are very important questions, which I'm sure there'll be answers to. In a few years' time, there'll be, there'll be obvious answers and clear answers. But at the moment, all the space providers I talk to have slightly different views about how they're going to make money. And some of them, it's very clear, and others 
it's not clear at all. And everybody looks at this and says, well, you know, the people make money in the mobile network world and it wasn't clear early on how they're going to do that. But again, this is a lot more of a regulated Providing air traffic management services is a highly regulated environment. It's not a market environment. And there are clear kind of performance areas, safety, efficiency, environmental improvement, cost efficiency, which are regulated. So you've got a very tightly regulated market, but you want to apply the full competition principles to that. I'm not yet sure we have a clear path as to how those two, two markets are, you know, can work together. I'd like to draw a parallel here outside of, of Europe, because to what I've seen so far, but maybe you will have a different view on that. One of the most advanced UTM system, which also offers commercial services, is what Astra UTM has been doing in Dubai. I've seen you can rent your airspace, you can book your airspace, you can book additional services like insurance, you can decide if you want deconfliction or not. But the big difference is Astra is the only provider of UTM in, in Dubai, if I'm not incorrect which means they have a leading system, they have advanced technology, but on the other side, they have no competition. So they are a bit like the, the old model. Could it be that these decisions by the community and by the, the European Commission is, is making things too complicated and more complicated than it should or could be? Or is, is competition basically something that in the long run will, will help the market? Well, that's an interesting question. And I think it's where you start. So if I was a country, I wouldn't say from day one, I want massive competition. You know, I mean, I just don't think that works. I think there will be a process where there will be, in many countries at least, a monopoly provider to begin with. And then as things become clearer, then perhaps you can introduce competition. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure Astra in Dubai is quite as you say. I, I still think we're in very early days yet in Dubai. I would look at, I'd rather look at ecosystems such as Antwerp Port, which as far as I think is the only commercially kind of active UTM ecosystem operating today, where they're actually managing different drone traffic on a commercial basis, fully commercial basis. So I think that's a, that's a, that's a more interesting example. But I think in terms of, yes, competition is good and it's important, but there has to be a clear delineation of on what you're competing, where you're competing, but the basic services should be non-competitive. If you're if you're managing safety, certain things have to be have to be basic within your plan. And it's only in the, in the non-core stuff where you can start to come where, where you can compete, which is you know areas like maintenance and upgrades and added data value and all that sort of stuff. However, I do think there are dangers here. I, I do think that it's it's going to be very difficult to see how competition at the moment can work if you integrate, if you insist on, sorry, not integrating UTM within the drone services. So to me, it's going to be incredibly important that your UTM system is different from your drone operational system. And this isn't the popular view, I know, but in other words, you can't just turn up with a drone and just say, yeah, it's got UTM integrated within it, so it's, it's fine, let's, let's go and fly. I think there has to be a separately regulated UTM service to manage airspace. Now, we may get to that, that um, UTM as a service at some stage, but I think to begin with, we need to be very, very clear on how UTM is going to, is going to work, and especially in the first, in the first iterations, in the first um, ecosystems, the regulators are going to have to be very, very clear about it has to be an independent service. It can't be a commercial service. So again, we don't actually have it a commercial BVLOS automated drone industry working yet. You know, that's that's still some 
that's still some time in the distance. So, so we have time to sort this out, but I don't think it's going to be easy. And I think it's going to be different everywhere you go. That's reassuring for me to know that an expert like you is following the domain for uh, five years and, and more now still says there is there is uncertainty because sometimes when you look at the co communication of some corporation it looks like everything is done and ready but I think the, the reality is far from that and, and looking at this past five years also looking on the operator side we had some big players coming in thinking of Amazon here for example they came in they were even you know the pizza guy saying oh we'll deliver your pizza by drone and some of them get out of the market already. So I just wanted to ask you if you can look back at the five years, what were the biggest illusions we had five years ago that did not come true and which one the next one you think will, will go down or, or maybe not go down and, and be the real market from the, the operator's part? Good question. So for the last five years, this has been a, um, a push market. So we've had these, these huge organizations, you know, we've had Silicon Valley coming in with all sorts of brilliant ideas and saying, you know, everybody's going to want this, but it's not a pool community. We want this service market yet. So the demand is unclear as to what services are required, what people want, what they'll pay for and how much they'll pay for. The pioneers in this area, the people who have, who have introduced the first drone delivery services, for example, say, and they're absolutely right, there's tremendous desire for this. There's a lot of demand for, for these services. And that, and that's absolutely right. But this shouldn't be up to them to decide, I don't think, what the demand is and, you know, what the limits are. That, that has to be, that has to be the community that decides that. And the most important people in this are not just the people who might want their pizza delivered by drone from, from, from a mile away. They're the people who, who, who have the properties overflown by the drone. And we haven't yet fully understood exactly how to ensure that this becomes a real demand-led market so that people will forgive mistakes that are going to happen because there will there will be accidents things will go wrong they'll forgive those things and be patient about it because it's something which they realize is in the public good we're not there yet and i think the approach taken by some operators to to begin with public services the, the delivery of medicines and healthcare and defibrillators and all that is a good place to start first responders is a good place to start that doesn't mean to say there shouldn't be other things going along at the same time. There shouldn't be pizza deliveries going on at the same time. But I think if most of the early, more adventurous pioneering services are aimed at the public good and communities can see that they are benefiting from that, then that is by far and away the best way to go. So to have to have large corporations coming in and saying, this is what we're going to you know, provide for you. It's going to be great. Sit back and enjoy it and we'll do everything is not, I don't think, the way to go. And I think that's one of the reasons why there have been problems. I also think there are problems about, about last mile delivery using drones. Um, I don't necessarily think that the economics are that convincing in all cases. They are in some cases where you have where you have remote communities. Absolutely. But mass drones competing against other forms of transport, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. That, I don't think that argument is convinced. It, it, might be, it might work in some places, but it won't work everywhere. And I think the other important part is the, is, is the role that local authorities play here too, because you know, we're flying over cities and people who are responsible for transport networks in the cities they will have some responsibility, increasing responsibility for drone services. And, and so they should. And that's one part which is only now 
being properly understood, properly recognized. We're starting to see some, some really big takeoff and landing area, drone projects coming on, urban air mobility, vertiports starting to spring up very late in the day, really, considering that we're looking at 2024 to have these services, you know, especially the eVTOL services in cities. Only now, you know, 18 months to go before we're actually looking at the, the vertiport side, which to me is wrong. You know, this is something we should have been looking at two, three, four years ago because it's an integrated system um, and, and we haven't quite got the speed of change and acceptance by those local authorities yet that we need. Well, from my point of view, as talking e-vehicles, so, so air taxis in, in, in popular way, as long as you have a pilot on board, from an ATC perspective, it's just a helicopter. So you don't, you don't need to change something. But it's true, if you have these things operating automatically, so autonomously, then we have, we have a totally new way of, of handling things because they cannot separate themselves just as helicopters do. And I just want to make a very brief parenthesis here. Would you be ready yourself to fly in an eVTOL without a pilot on board? Personally, I'm not yet, to be honest. Well, put it like this. Yes, if, if it was a short route from place A to place B that I could see. No, if it was part of an integrated airspace with lots of other things flying around there. I wouldn't, you know, I don't think we're quite there yet. So, so yes, yes to begin with for the short autonomous. And I, I think that's an interesting point because the first services are going to be easy because they're going to be single city centres to an airport or whatever, one or two. The real revolution comes in the second phase when we want to have more than one service and we have services going through airspace, which which has yet to be kind of fully fully understood how that's going to be democratically managed. And that's a difficult bit, not the first bit, but the, but the second bit. Another aspect I think could be critical in the near future, especially talking last mile delivery, is the, the noise aspect. I think I would be okay myself to have a drone going to the local post office, delivering parcels from a central point, but I'm not sure I would be happy to have drones landing in the backyards 10 times a day to deliver parcels to my neighbors. Not to mention if you are living in a big block, you just cannot land on a, on a balcony. Do you think regulation is up to date with that or can we expect a big pushback by people when they will hear the noise of drones everywhere? Well, I mean, it's another interesting point. This is a very personalized question because the same noise can be perceived by, by two people in two different ways. It's not just the volume of the noise, it's the kind of noise, it's the, it's the makeup of the noise, how much of a nuisance that is. So if you have a block of flats, for example, a block of apartments, 40% of the people might be fine with it. 20% of the people might really, really dislike it. But about 1% or 2%, it might really grate with them. It could really jar them in ways which we don't yet fully understand. So, you know, this is something which I go back to. It has to be a community decision on how much we allow and how it's democratically. Everybody has to have a stake in this industry. Everybody has to be able to say no or yes, but. and. And we haven't quite got the vehicles in place to do that. I like how you say community here, because for me, community sounds like something without a scale. And that brings me to the next point. A lot of these regulations will have to do with ownership of very low altitude airspace, let's say ground to 200 meters. And this is something where nobody is flying nowadays. Obviously, no, no commercial aviation. Even private pilots will not venture to fly 200 meters above a city which would probably be illegal in most cases. So nobody has been flying in that airspace for now. And this probably raised the question, who has to regulate it? Who owns that airspace? But also who will put regulations on noise? And when you say community, do you think like country scale, 
or just a city, just a town, a neighborhood? Who is owning and who is in charge of, of regulating that, in your view? Let's take three cities. Hamburg. Hamburg is a city that owns its airspace. Dublin. Dublin, that's owned by the Irish Aviation Authority. London, that's owned by the property owners beneath. So you have three cities with three different airspace ownership modules. So what you have to do is whatever you apply, whatever regulations you want to apply, you have to apply those to the, the structure, the framework of airspace ownership that already exists. I would suggest that in Ireland and in Hamburg, you have a single, you have a single authority with who, who you can work with. So it's not so difficult. If you look at London, however, you imagine flying a drone within 200 feet of a tall office apartment. And on levels three and four, there is a government agency who has leased that space. Um, everybody else might be perfectly happy with drones flying within 200 feet, but levels three and four won't be. Somehow you have to get their permission or ask their permission for a drone to flow by. And once you look at the ownership issue of the airspace, and then you start to see just how complicated this whole business can be. If you're dealing just with one organization, it's relatively simple. If you're dealing with all the householders and the go over a port, it's not just who owns that port, it's who actually leases that area you're, you're flying over. And what are they doing there? Could there be hazardous materials which damage if, if a drone fell into that? So, so the ownership and who you're flying over is terribly important. And that's separate, I think, or that's a separate regulatory issue, which hasn't properly been addressed yet. But again, it's also very particular to the country, to the state and to the village or the town. But is that not a big obstacle to deploying an, a drone transportation industry? Because to talk about big ones again, people like Amazon or even even the National Post Service, if they have to deal with all different authorities just when they move 20 kilometers away, How can you develop a business model when you have to adapt it and adjust to reg local regulations all over the place? Or is it something that, in your view, USSP should do? So basically, the USSP would be kind of an interface between all the authorities and the drone operators so that you can operate a drone the same way everywhere? Or is it really something that will remain the burden of the operator? I don't know. <laughs> I, really don't, I really don't know. Um, it's a very good question. And I don't think we will know until until we actually start flying, because this is all theoretical. You know, we're, we're talking about what ifs and buts and everything. But I think the only way to sort these problems out is to actually start operating. And, and that's why places like Paris are so important. You know, Paris 2024, air taxi operations for the Olympics. That that to me is a is a key issue, because I think. If you see that and it works, as I'm sure it will do, because they do things very well in France, then you'll you'll get you'll start to get uh, cities saying, "Hey, we want that. You know, we want they've got in Paris. It looks fantastic. Everybody's everybody's on board. Everybody loves it. You know, um, they're proud to see these things flying over." So, so there could be a momentum of the local authorities to say, "We're going to implement this here," unless there are some really really tough reasons why we can't. And who knows? There could be a generational thing where a lot of you know next generation will come along and say, yeah, we, we've got to have this in our city. I've, I've just been to Sao Paulo, they've got them, and, and we, we've got to have them here. So, so there's that cultural clash, which, which we don't yet know who's going to win in all the various cities and places, and not the cities, the towns, villages, and you know, rural areas where these things are going to fly. And I think every, every, little, every little place, over, every little ecosystem is going to have its own battles. 
the issues there are at the moment about, about 5G masts. Now, we don't know yet whether people are going to start saying, ah, oh, okay, this mainstream media and, 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 this, and the deep state are flying drones over. They say they're taking pizzas, but actually they're spying on what you're doing. And make, so, so we haven't yet seen what the, what, what, how social media and people who, who have concerns about security and, and privacy, how, whether they're going to be organized and whether there's going to be all sorts of political pushback. We don't know yet because the industry doesn't yet properly exist. I think we've got to prepare prepare the gunpowder now, where we've got to be absolutely clear that the, we could face an awful lot of opposition from these areas, and we have to have some sort of strategies for engaging people. And that's because that's the only answer. You've, the more people you engage, the more people you bring on board as stakeholders and just say, look, here you go, here's a screen, here are the drones, this is what they're doing, this is where they're flying. If you've got a problem, click that. You know, If you make it open, you make it democratic, you give everybody a stake, then that's your best That's your best. Um, your best way forward. That, that's once more an interesting perspective comparing with, uh, with let's say, classical aviation. You know, I, I used to be a private pilot and basically, except for military restricted airspace and that kind of stuff, you can fly from A to B anywhere in the world, filing a flight plan, and it's always the same thing. It's ICAO regulated and it's easy. I could rent an aircraft almost anywhere in the world and operate the same way and apparently, it's not something that is close to happen for the, the drone operators right now. And now to, to wrap up uh, the episode, I'd like you to try to project for us your view of the, the UAM and UTM industry in the next five years, but also what you expect to see in the next 50 years. I will do. But before I, before I do so, I'm just to have one final comment about what you've just said. There is, I think, a major misunderstanding that this is just another form of aviation. It's not just another form of aviation. Drone, the potential of drone flights and UAM is a completely different form of transport because it is dealing with cities and communities at low level, very, very close to the ground, which is something that aviation, that, you know, the first thing you learn about aviation is you keep it away from people and you keep it away from buildings. This is the opposite. You get as close as you can to buildings and as close as you can to people. And it's a completely requiring a completely different mindset. So, so I would be very careful about saying, yeah, it's just helicopters and with, with different engines. It's not. It's, it's, it's something very, very different. Five years' time, I would expect to see 10 cities around the world with probably what I call stage one urban air mobility air taxi programs. So flying simple routes from city centre to the airport, city centre somewhere else. 50 years, look, the sky is going to be black, isn't it? With not just air taxis with personal air vehicles with fantastic things you put on your back you just fly out somewhere you're going to have all sorts of uh, um, esoteric lighter than air vehicles flying you're going to have police flying around in in, um, in motorbikes everything's no airspace management you don't need airspace management everything is separation is assured assured within everything and that's it <laughs> philip thanks a lot for for the answer i like that i just hope the skies will not be that black uh, I'd like to get some some sun even in, in 50 years. Thank you very much for being our guest today. I call your website once again, so it's unmanairspace.info. The link is in the, the episode notes anyway, and I encourage any listener interested in any aspect of UAM and e-vitals and, and drones to check your website and, and keep it as, as an important source of information. Philippe, thank you very much. Thank you, Vincent. I enjoyed it. This was Radar Contact. 
Visit foxatm.com or your favorite podcast platform for more.